My sermon titled this morning is, What's Shaping Your Image of God? What's Shaping Your Image of God? And I want to start by reading a passage in the book of Job. Job, at the end of his journey, because Job is a story about a guy who really goes through a journey. And he comes to a conclusion about life, but more than that, he comes to a conclusion about God. And in the New International Version, this is the conversation that Job starts chapter 42 off with. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. This is one of the conclusions that Job came to. That's a good conclusion. When you become convinced that God can do anything, anything and everything, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Whatever you have planned, nothing by any means will be able to stop it. Let's go to verse 3. You asked me, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And surely... I must admit, I spoke of things I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said to me, listen now and I will speak. And I will question you. And you, Job, will answer me. My ears had heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and in ashes. Well, there's another translation called the Message Bible. The Message Bible is not a word-for-word translation from the original Hebrew or the Greek, as would be the NIV. Translations like the New King James Version, translations like the NIV, they go back to the original text, And they will go word for word and translate it from the Hebrew or from the Greek if it's in the New Testament. The Message Bible is more of a paraphrase. It's let's knock it down, just break it down, and lay it out in layman's terms. So I want to read this to you from the Message Bible. Message Bible is great for general reading, for getting the gist of something, but you're not going to build doctrine from the Message Bible. Everybody understand the difference? It's good to get an overall layman's terms view of what God is saying. But if you're going to build doctrine, if you're going to come to a conclusion about God, this is just a general overview. But this is what the Message Bible says. I like it. It's pretty cool. Job answered God and he said, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Somebody say yes. Come on. You can do anything. Job said, I am convinced you can do anything and everything, and nothing and no one can upset your plans. Wow, that would be a good thing to grave into our understanding of God. Everybody should take a chisel right now and a hammer and start graving the image of God according to these words into your imagination and into your understanding of who God is. 
I'm convinced you can do anything and everything and nothing and no one, not even the devil, no one can upset your plans. Job goes on to say, you asked, who is this muddying the water? Job is saying, God, you spoke to me and you said, who's this little guy muddying up the water? Ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes. Hey, church, sometimes when we don't have a correct worldview, our politics will be up, up the wall. And when we don't have a correct God view, our perspective of life and our perspective of him could be totally up the creek. And God is saying to Job, and Job's recognizing it, he said, here I was muddying the water with my wrong thinking. Here I was second-guessing the purposes of God. One of the reasons why it's my prayer that we see God as he really is is because so often we have misunderstood him and we have wrongly and falsely and incorrectly attributed things to God that don't line up with his character and don't line up with his nature. And so we've allowed, either through religion or past experiences, other things to carve out an image of God that doesn't line up with the mirror of who God really is. And so Job, at the end of his journey, found that he had been doing that. He had cast an image of God in his own mind, in his own reality that did not line up with the God that he finally discovered. And if you know anything about Job, the Bible tells us that he was a God-fearing man from the beginning. He was so godly that whenever his kids had a party, he would then afterwards go and make sacrifices to the Lord just in case one of his kids had done something wrong to offend them. This is a guy who had a knowledge and a religious format and a, and, and a fairly decent understanding of God, and yet he came to a point in life where his relationship with God and his experience with God was tweaked to another whole level, so much so that he almost felt like he never really understood God before. And why is that relevant here today? It's relevant because every one of us have had filters that have affected and influenced the way we see life. Uh, I'm sure anyone and everyone here has worn sunglasses. And, you know, you can get sunglasses or glasses with all different kinds of colors. And right now, you all look like you've been out in the sun way too long. And the color of our glasses will absolutely affect how we see life. The experiences you've had with your mother, with your father, the experiences you've had in marriage, the experiences you've had as a kid, the experiences you've had in religion or in church, will influence how you perceive God, and how you perceive God will affect your worldview. It will affect your view of you because subconsciously you are created in His image. 
And so the enemy, knowing that we were carved out into the image of God, he attacks the image of God so that he can attack the image of us in a very subtle, subconscious way deep down inside of our soul. Are you hearing me? When we see God as he is, the truth of seeing God as he really is, is a liberating factor. That's why Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We have been made in his image and every wrong doctrine about God, every abuse or misrepresentation of God somehow will affect our image of us and what we deserve or don't deserve, and it will affect our image or our world view. Are you with me? Job goes on to say, uh, you asked me who's muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issues, second-guessing my purposes. I admit I was the one. I babbled on about things that were far beyond me. I made small talk about wonders that were way over my head. You told me, listen, and let me do the talking for a change. Let me ask the questions. And you, Job, give the answers. I admit, I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and my own ears. Pretty amazing passage of Scripture, isn't it? I want to know God like that. I want the whole world to know God like that. You know, I'm a preacher's kid. And one of the disadvantages a preacher's kid has is that every person who ever gets bitter or disappointed or disgruntled with the church will usually blame your father. And I knew my father. I knew him as the guy on the pulpit, and I also knew him the guy behind the scenes. And if there's one thing I knew about my dad, and that was that he was very sincere. He genuinely loved God and he genuinely loved the people. He loved the church. He cared about people. And so as a preacher's kid, you know, oftentimes it would hurt me. It would agonize me. It would pain me to see my father and at times my mother misunderstood or misrepresented people with malicious motives or people who are viewing things from their own broken perspectives. You know, we judge others based on what we know about ourselves. Yeah, think about it. I'll say it again. We judge others based on what we know about ourselves. That's why Jesus says, as you judge, so shall you be judged. We actually judge out of <laughs> the weaknesses we know about us. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I remember growing up with this sense of wanting to defend my dad and, and wanting people to see him as he really is. And yet I know my dad wasn't perfect, just like I'm not perfect. Sometimes I pity my kids and I think to myself, you know, uh, 
I, I stand in the way of their image of a perfect God. And I pray God help them to see you way, way better than I've ever been able to demonstrate you. Amen? Can I get an agreement? I, I, I've tried my best to be an excellent dad, and I think I've been a good one because my kids love me. And either that's just a testimony of their own uh, innate sense of loyalty and it speaks volumes about who they are, or maybe it speaks also a little bit that for all my flaws and mistakes, maybe I didn't do too bad of a job. But I found this year that as I've grown up and stepped into the ministry myself, the very feelings that I had about wanting to protect or defend or to exonerate my earthly dad, because I knew him, I knew, I knew the man, I knew the heart, I have found that that same passion has risen up in me regarding my heavenly father. Amen. Because the enemy has sought to sabotage and desecrate the image of who God is. Knowing that if he could tear down the image of God in a very subtle way, he will tear down the image of God in us. Amen. Absolutely. And so, I want to take you with me for a moment to the story of Adam and Eve. And I'm going to start towards the end of the story with Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And for Matt, uh, I've actually cut verse 8 short because I want to deal with the first half of verse 8. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard... Yeah, the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Let's stop right there. Okay, take the rest off, Matt. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What's really cool about this is that they obviously heard that sound before because they recognized it. How bliss, how wonderful, how incredibly amazing it would be to have lived in a world before the fall and to have walked in the garden in the cool of the day and to have seen God. Now, how many of you read that and think about that and think, wow, if there's a tourist destination of destinations, that's the place I'd like to go to. Before the fall... To walk in the garden in the cool of the day with God. Can I have a raise of hands? How many of you agree? Okay, since they can't hear you on the audio, now let me get some volume. How many of you agree? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's interesting is when I look at this here, I think of Adam and Eve who didn't have a past. They were created from the beginning. And so Adam didn't have a poor father image to interfere with his image of God. 
He didn't have a religious organization legalistically preaching to him about God and putting the fear and the terror of God up him so that God would be the last person he'd want to turn to should he ever make a mistake. Adam and Eve didn't have any of the things that so often color our perspective and uh, sabotage our image of God. They were created in an idyllic world with no past, no bad memories. They only had the experience of God that they were having on a day-to-day basis. Can we all agree on that foundation? Absolutely. At least from the account from Scripture, which I believe is more true and more real than anything that science supposes. Maybe I should say that again. (laughs) Come with me. Let's do an exercise. Okay, we're going to do a Bible study for a second. So we want to see God from the perspective of Adam's experience. Now remember, he has no bad childhood memories of a dad who would pull out the razor strap and whoop his butt. He's got no experience of a dad who would uh, misjudge his actions and start yelling at him and freaking out and, you know, telling him that he's a worthless, no good kid. I thank God I don't have that experience either. But all of us are broken. You see, my experience is that as good a man as my dad was, and he was a very good man, And if I could bring him down from heaven and live some years with him now, oh, I would do it in a heartbeat. I'd love to talk to my dad about the last 10 years of my life and just share with him and talk and ask questions. But even so, you see, my dad, I saw him as an excellent pastor. He loved the people and had time for everyone. But my dad, his dad died when he was about 11. And so, as a father, when he'd step into the role of a dad, he spoke Italian, we spoke New York. And never the twain did the two meet. In fact, I remember one time, my mother was the interpreter constantly. She was the interpreter between us and dad. And the reason why she had to be the interpreter, you'd figure that after a little while, you guys would learn the language. The thing is, Dad didn't talk with us. He didn't talk with us. And so, um, I I remember one time my father saying to me, and we were still in New York, you know, so I was pretty young. I would have been about seven years old. And he said, you got it. I looked at him the same way you're looking at me. And he looks at me as if to say, is there something wrong with you? And he says it again. The third time he goes, Marie. That's my mother. (laughs) He's calling for the interpreter. Marie. Marie. 
About five years later, when we were living in Australia, and my parents are working with new immigrants who had just literally come off the boat. They immigrated to Australia via ships. Uh, uh, that was the most common mode and cheapest mode of transport in those days. Uh, we started to learn how to talk Italian because of the kids that were in the church. And they'd learn English from us, we'd learn Italian from them. And I remember having this epiphany one day. I heard the word toalia, and I found out it meant towel. My dad was asking me to get him a towel, and I was there like a stunned mullet. But it made such an impact on me that years later, when I finally learned this word, oh, that's what my dad wanted. And as good a man as he is. He was a man of absolute integrity. In fact, I respect him so much because he was a man of very high values. You didn't have to be looking over his shoulder. He looked over his own shoulder and held himself accountable to a very high standard. I love him for that. He modeled for me, an image that I, I hope I live up to all my life, that I can be an ethical, honest, sincere, genuine man of God. Whether I'm a pastor or not, every one of us are called to be women and men of God. Can I get an agreement? But obviously there were flaws in his human personality. And some of those flaws affected my image of God as I was growing up. You see, while I didn't realize this consciously at the time, but learned this years later as God started to do some healing in me, I would look at my dad and he would patiently sit and talk with people and counsel them, and he'd have all the patience in the world. But when he stepped into the role of being a dad, he didn't have an image. He went to work at 11 because his daddy died. And it was uh, during hard times in Italy. And he helped take his family through the Second World War and had to provide as the nation was in chaos. And so he didn't know how to mirror the image of a father. And it affected my image of God because I grew up with this understanding subliminally. It was easier for me to love everyone else than it was for me to love me. And what I realized as a young pastor was this, that I could believe that God cared about all of you, but I struggled believing that God cared that much about me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Because of an image that was cast, not deliberately, but we're all flawed, we're all broken, we're all discombobulated. What's the word? <laughs> there you go, thank you. I just wanted to see if you could say it. Look. Who's casting the image? Who's graving the image of God in your imagination? Who's influencing you? 
How do you see him? Who is God? In your understanding and in your relationship. Because honestly, how you see him will determine the whole level and depth and dynamics of your relationship with him. You say, Pastor, where are you really going with all this? You see, it's my heart's desire that we get to know who God really is so that we give him the love and the honor and receive in return the benefit of a relationship that is meant to be absolutely wonderful. Somebody can talk to you about a third party that you've never met and fill you up with so much information about that third party. And it could be all untrue, lies, exaggerations. Because the person who's talking to you, they've got a broken issue inside of them. Okay? And you meet this third party and you will judge them based on what has been told you. And then five years later of sort of skirting around the issue and trying to avoid them and life just keeps bringing the two of you together, you, you come to a place where, wow, this person is nothing like what so-and-so told me. Hello? You see, and I find that God is in that situation all the time. Because the master of this world, the God of this world, is a liar from the beginning. He is a deceiver. He is a masquerader. He is a perverter of everything that is pure and everything that is true. And if there's one main objective that he has, and that is to distort our perception of God so that he could destroy our relationship with God. Amen. Amen. So come with me real quickly, and let's, let's have a look at what Adam's experience was with God. The first time that Adam and God start to have any kind of interchange is written in Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful. I mean, can we, can we take this out of the Bible and just break this down? God just created this man and this woman. He goes, wow. I bless you. I bless you. I wish the best for you. I want to put my favor on you. Man, I just want life to be awesome. Go on, guys, be fruitful, be prosperous, enjoy life. Have your fill of life. I've created this garden. I've created this utopia. I've created this world so that I could have joy by watching you, my kids, have fun. That's what it says in the first sentence. You didn't get that before, did you? You know why? Because we have God cast in an image of religiosity. Can we take the religion off of God and read that like a real scenario? God bless them. Bless you, my son. You think that's what he did? 
Bless you, my son. Bless you, my daughter. Come on. When I'm blessing my kids, I'm raving about them. I'm loving on them. I'm cuddling them. I'm praising them. I'm congratulating them. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful, guys. Increase in number. Fill the earth. I want more of you. Go out there and make kids and fill the earth with people like yourself. What a validation. What a compliment. What a wow. I am for you. I am with you. I am proud of you. How many of you can see that in there? You see, religion will stop you from seeing that. He says, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Stop, stop. (laughs) Do you see the validation? Come on, can you see it? God is saying, I am putting you in charge of everything. I'm giving you the power and the authority that as this bird flies overhead, you can call to it. It'll come and sit on your shoulder and it will rub its its face against your cheek. And I am giving you the power and the authority that you can call to the elephants and then tug on their ears and jump on their necks and go for a ride. I am giving you the right, I'm giving you the privilege, I'm giving you the mastery, I am giving you the ownership of the earth that you could walk into the midst of a lion's pride and have a make-believe wrestle with the lion. You see, we read this stuff through religious eyes. The God who created the diversity and the exoticness of this world said a lot more than just those few words. I used to say years ago, and uh, when my kids were a lot younger, I used to say to the church, when I go to heaven, I've put an order in. I'm going to have my own pet lion. A male lion with a big, hairy mange. You know, I'm going to walk him down the street. So after my son hearing me say this for about 20 times, he said to me, when I go to heaven, I'm going to have a T-Rex and he's going to eat your lion. (laughs) Thanks, Rob. (laughs) This is Adam's first image of God. That's why I'm doing this. Remember, he's got no past, no history, no religion, no human interference. This is his first experience with a creator who believes in him and has given him mastery over the birds of the air, over the animals of the field. Could you imagine, and I'm being dead honest, dead sincere here, absolutely. Can you imagine Adam standing at the edge of the ocean and calling out to the dolphins and say, come on, I want you to take me for a ride. Could you imagine Adam 
because I believe this. Why else would you have authority and influence over the animals? Remember, this is before the fall, so there was absolute harmony. There was perfection. There was peace. There was unity. Everything flowed together, and there was a divine order, and God had put man on the earth as his crowning jewel. So could you imagine Adam walking up to the beach and saying, Hey, flipper! (laughs) And here comes this dolphin, a whole pot of dolphins, and he jumps on board and they delicately take him for a ride. Can you imagine him calling out to the whales? You see, we don't know how much time went by before the fall. But what we do know is that he had nothing written in his memory boards up here other than these experiences with God. And everything about his experience, God believes in him. God is validating him. God is patting him on the back. God is wanting him to prosper. God is wanting him to have the best life ever. Can I get an agreement? Is there another verse? We're going down to verse 30. Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they'll be yours for food. Stop. You notice something? Before the fall, not even the life of an animal would be taken. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. You see, before the fall, there was absolute harmony in creation. That's why when we read prophecies about the millennium and prophecies about the world to come when Jesus is established as king and lord it says that the lion will lay down with the lamb that a child will play at a cobra's hole and there'll be no need for alarm or fear see we live in a world of disorder because we live in a world of confusion because we live in a world that is now controlled by the kingdom of darkness god is a god of order and where there is order There's divine order, and when you have order, you have peace. And there was peace. And so these are some of the first conversations that God had with man. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. And God says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Verse 17, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You can eat from any tree. You could eat as much as you want. You want to grab one of those dragon fruit. How many of you have ever seen a dragon fruit in the supermarket. Don't they look just absolutely exotic, right? Or a mango. Oh, I just love getting my face full of mango. You can eat as much as you want. There's just one tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
How many of you wish you could turn back time and go back to a place where you only had the knowledge of good? You see, God, not out of stinginess, but out of goodness, was telling him, there's one tree I don't want you to eat from. Out of love, out of concern, out of protection. Okay? So, then we have, uh, let's have a look at verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Please, let's rip all the religion off of us. Let's do this justice. Here's Adam. He knows he doesn't have a past. So he knows that this being who's in the garden with him in the cool of the day is this phenomenal creator who just created all these things and has just given him power and authority over nature. And now God calls every animal one by one to Adam. And he says, go on, son, give it a name. Me? Yeah. Here's Adam looking in the face of God, who is the creator, the inventor. You know, see here in this world, we invent something. We want to slap a patent on it because somebody else is going to steal it. We want to make sure we get the, 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 the credit. So we put a copyright or whatever it, that work of art or invention might be. We want to make sure we've got to protect us because everybody else is going to try to take the credit for it. And if there's a buck to be made, they're going to make a buck off of my back. Here's God in this unfallen state, this unfallen economy. And he says, I've created all this stuff, but Adam, I'm going to have a blast. You're my kid. I'm going to call one animal at a time. I want you to name them. And as Adam named every animal, God stood there and he approved. And he thought it was really cool. And that was its name awesome this is his these are his experiences with god let's go to verse 18 we're going to jump back one verse the lord god said it's not good for man to be alone stop you know what that tells me these guys were connected he could feel adam's heart he understood what Adam was experiencing, and he felt for him. So here's this creator of the universe who just made this masterpiece, but he's feeling the heart of this guy called Adam. Everyone look at me. You see, we read the word with religious eyes and mindset, and we don't get half this stuff. But that verse right there, just that one little verse tells me God totally understands me. He gets you. He understands you. He knows the things that you long for. He knows the things you feel. And he cares about them. They're important to him. This wasn't just about procreation. He didn't say, okay, we got to make a duplicate of Adam. No, he could have just kept creating... Uh, uh, human beings out of the earth 
He said, no, Adam needs someone to relate to on a more intimate level. He has this tremendous creation, but he needs a soulmate. God gets it. Listen, not the God of religion, but the God of this universe gets you. And we will come to a whole new level of living when we get him. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the number one thing he wants to steal and destroy is the image of God in your eyes. God gets him. And he says, I'm, I'm going to make a, a suitable helpmeet, a partner for him. That's verse 18. We go down to verse uh, 21. The Lord said, uh, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to him. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now notice he names her. God didn't even say name her. He does it because he already understands the relationship he has with God. God has given him the right to call things. And he says, I'm a man. This is, whoa, man. And he calls her and names her, and he's thrilled. This is Adam's relationship with God. So my question is, how was a snake able to have a conversation with, God, with Adam and convince him that God actually wanted to keep something good from him? Who's casting the image of God in your understanding? As a man, what stops you from coming to God and being real and being honest? What stops you from picking up your Bible and wanting to love Him? What stops you from getting a little bit emotional because you just read how Jesus loves you? What stops you from desiring Him and wanting to run after Him? What images, what chisel, and what hammer has chiseled away a part of your life so that you see God in a light differently than what you've been experiencing? As a woman, what fear of man has come upon you that causes you to mistrust God as a dad? What is it that's happened in your life and in your childhood that causes you to freeze up when the presence of God comes? What is it that stops you from running after him and wanting him more than life itself? Because Adam didn't have a past to draw from. He only had the experience he was having with God. And yet the Bible shows me that sin will come to each and every one of us. And the devil is always a liar. And the devil will try to misrepresent God. When the image of God changed in Adam's understanding, the image of who Adam was changed, and his whole world changed. Your worldview is fashioned by the images that have been carved out 
to you by the political stance your family takes, by the nation you grew up in. <laughs> the people in China have a very different worldview of Americans than Americans have of America. You know, growing up, uh, and I spent a lot of my time as a kid in Australia, but here in America, our worldview centers around who we are as Americans because America is a prominent nation, it is a powerful nation, and a lot of interactions with other nations do revolve around where we stand, not solely and totally, but then compare that to Australia that was still a very young nation and a, nowhere near the level of influence or power or recognition on the world scene. And in Australia, our worldview was a much broader view because we didn't view the world from the perspective of us, Australia. Australians suffer with inferiority complex as a people in general. They had to launch a special campaign in Australia called Proud to be Australian because the general consensus of Aussies were that we were losers and we were second rate. And so the government invested millions of dollars in a Proud to be Australian movement to try to build up their own sense of identification and their own credibility. And so their worldview put them in with everyone else, and they had a broader worldview. And it was very obvious watching the news in Australia and watching the news in America how different it is. My point is that your circumstances, your past, the things you've been taught, your education, your religious experiences will formulate a worldview and many times it will, it will pollute, it will pervert, it will twist the view of God because somewhere that snake will get into the mix and he will try to present a God that is different than the God who is willing to become flesh and strap himself to a cross. So even though I look at Adam and, and I read he walked with God in the cool of the day, I realize that sin and the lies of the enemy have a way to get to all of us. And my heart and my prayer is that we will not believe the lies of the enemy, but that we will believe the truth of the Word of God. Would you stand with me? Musicians, would you come? If you look at the chair in front of you down at the lower level, you'll see a communion cup. You see, the reason why I wanted to do this at the end of my preaching is because you can't have a better view of God than this right here. You see, when Jesus did this, you know what he said? You know what this is about? He said, do this in remembrance of who I am. See, this defines God to me. Right here. I don't mean the eco-unfriendly plastic cup. 
but that he would become one of us. That he would come down into a world that we sullied, we polluted, we made ugly. And that he would become as much a victim of life as every one of us have ever been. He thought that to rescue you, it was worth it. He thought to be able to put his arms around you and love you and be able to call you his daughter, irrespective of all the mistakes you've made and I've made, and I've made a lot more than you, I'm sure. He was willing to. You know, it'd be one thing if he became man before man was a fallen creature. But he identified with us in our brokenness. See this here? I don't know how religion defines God to you. But I'm calling on every man to come to war with me. And to fight the lies that the enemy has told you. That religion is just for women and it's not cool to get emotional. It's not cool to cry. It's not cool to want say, I love Jesus. It's not cool to get passionate. And I want you to take out your sword. I want you to take out your shout. I want you to take out your common sense. I want you to take out your righteous indignation and say, devil, you're nothing but a liar because nobody gets me more than the person who is willing to do this. Nobody understands me more. Nobody knows me better. Nobody will love me better. Nobody can put me together like the one who is willing to take my place. Now listen, hear me. This sermon is not a lead up to communion. No, I'm not trying to say these things to get you ready for communion so that, you know, we could all have an emotional moment. No, 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 no. It happens to be communion today. Carlos reminded me 10 minutes before church, so this message has got nothing to do with communion. This message has got to do with your walk with God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. Listen to me because this is the crux of the message right here. I don't want you to miss this point. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They walked with God in their circumstances. They worked, walked with God in their experience. But they didn't walk with God in his heart. Because if they had a known God, if they had a taken time to delve into who he was, if they had a taken time, if Adam had a taken time to look at the fact, hey, God's given me the right to put a copyright on every animal and every species. If they had taken time to acknowledge how much God had given them, they never would have fallen for the lie that the devil said that God was trying to keep something really good for them. 
You see, they walked with God in the cool of the day, just like you and I can walk with God in church. And we enjoy His presence every time He comes down. They walked with God in the cool of the day, just like you can have uh, the message on your series uh, radio as you're driving to work and you could be tapping away and singing those praise songs. But they never took time to get into the heart of God and into the spirit of God and into the mind of God. And if they had taken time to go deeper in relationship with Him, if they had a hunger to know Him, they never would have believed the lie that the devil was spinning to them on that day. They had nothing negative to draw on. But because their roots didn't go deeper in who God was, and they were living only in the experience of what God can do. When the moment of testing came, they didn't know who God was. I don't want you just to experience God in the blessing of what He can do. I don't want you just to walk with God in the cool of the day. I want you to get inside of his head and inside of his heart and know him so intimately that no devil will ever be able to lie to you and change the image of who God is. Are you hearing me today? Amen. I think the reason why Jesus told us to do this and he said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Is because this is the reset button. It's the reset button. Every time I look at this and I think that Jesus died for me, I immediately realize I worship a God that I don't deserve. Every time I think about the fact that Jesus died on that cross, I think to myself, if Jesus Christ is God and He died for me, then there's nothing too great for me to do for Him. This is the reset button. And we need to throw religion out the door. We need to throw our hurts and our wounds and our bruises and our painful memories, we need to put them under the blood and under the Word of God and see God as God is and allow God to be who God is to us. Amen. The sad thing is, the principle, how you judge, you will be judged. How we frame God will be the judgment of our experience. So who's casting the image of God in your heart? Because the God I've come to know is a God who is so perfect, so pure, so loving, He's never wrong. And if there's something I don't understand and something inside of me wants to take offense at Him and I got 
you know, my mind or my emotions or some devil urging me to get annoyed at God. God, if you're so good, if you love me, why'd you do this here? I immediately reset my thoughts and I come to the conclusion, one thing I have convinced myself of, and that's this, God is good and only good. He is absolutely good. There is no evil in Him, no evil intent, no prejudice, no bias. He is good and His judgments are always right. And if things aren't making sense to me, it's because there's a part of the equation that I don't know yet. But it never changes my image of God. You know, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked a very unusual question. And if you're a disciple, he asks you the same question. Matthew 11, verse 6. Will you be offended at me? Adam and Eve were seduced and they took offense at God. I want you to reset the button. And I want you to see what God looks like as you get ready to take communion today. Because there's nothing in God to ever bring offense to us. But there are things in our image of God that causes us to stumble and take offense. And so like Job, I say, God, forgive me for muddying the waters. Forgive me for babbling about things I don't understand. You and only you are always right. Can I get an amen? amen? Praise God. Why don't you take that first tab and just slide it back. Have access to that wafer. And then peel the foil back. By these two things... God has redeemed us, rescued us, and shouted loudly forever to hell and all of its constituents. God has said, I love them. I love them, I love them, I love them. This convinces me more about God than anything else. I'll be honest with you. I give my life up for the church, but I don't know that I would die for you individually. I have no question I would, I would jump in front of a bus to save Amber or Robbie or Amy or Ella or Judah. Stephen, while well, I'm still thinking about it. He's my son. I would do it. I don't know that I would do that for any and every person. I'll give up my life. I'll sacrifice. I'll run a church rather than run business. I'll do it because I love you. But do you understand God took the bullet for each and every one of us? No greater love. No greater love. Come on. Let's eat this wafer that symbolizes his body. And then let's drink from this cup the blood of Jesus that makes us sons and daughters of God. Amen.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Do you know why you can believe God to touch you? You know why you can believe God to do the impossible? You know why you can believe God to break through that wall and to turn things around? You know why you can believe God to intervene in your circumstance? Because He is who He is and He's absolutely wonderful. I could give you sermon after sermon on step one, step two, step three to the formulas of faith. But nothing gives me faith like seeing His face and knowing who He is. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 As we close here this morning, this is just the first in a series of who's graving the image of God in your eyes. But if you have never asked Jesus Christ into your heart, or if certain time in the past you did, but you've walked away from the, Him, I want to give you that opportunity today to let Jesus come into your heart so that you can know God in a way you've never known Him before. And so while every eye is closed, today, if the Spirit of God is tugging at your heart, Say yes to Jesus. I want you to raise your hand right across this auditorium. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I see those hearts. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will continue to saturate us. You will continue to demonstrate to us your love, your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. And Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we command every barrier, every wall, every lie, every distortion of truth that the enemy has presented to come tumbling down. And every finger he has ever pointed and an image that doesn't represent you. Father, we tear those things down in our mind and in our mind's understanding of who you are. And we say to those strongholds, you will not define God and you will not define my relationship with God. We speak to those hurts, we speak to those wounds, we speak to those bruises, and in the name of Jesus, we declare that they are powerless from this moment forward to define and to shape and to change our image with God. In Jesus' name, I command strongholds, I command demonic forces, where you hide in the bruises of people's lives, where you hide in the dark secrets of their memories, I command you to loose them and let them go in Jesus' name. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that by the grace of God, by the breath of God, by the love of God, that you will fill us and fill us completely in Jesus' name, let healing flow. Let resurrection, 
rise up inside of us. In the precious name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.